Uh, for the rest of us in here, we are going to continue our way in our series on Elijah and Elisha. Now we're focusing on the life of Elijah. We're going to be in 2 Kings uh, chapter 5. This morning, as we've moved our way uh, through this series, we've, the, the king has largely been Ahab, and now it's his sons and Things just seem to keep getting worse, and things are not going well in Israel as the kings are leading them astray. Yet the last two weeks, we've seen some of the miracles surrounding Elisha's ministry and the fact that Yahweh, Israel's God, has not abandoned them. He's still at work through them. Now, today we're going to kind of see a startling shift. It's like the, the camera pans, and it takes us away from Israel, which is very surprising, and it takes us to Syria. And it takes us to Israel's enemy. Let's read, starting at verse 1, and we're going to read this whole chapter. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrian, on on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord thus, and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And so he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and he said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go, wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry, and he went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farfa, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in rage. But his servants came near to him and they said, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually told you, wash and be clean? So he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan. According to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. He returned to the man of God and he and all of his company and he came and he stood before him and he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. And for from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon when I bow myself in the house of Ramon. The Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go, 
in peace. When Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him, and he said, Is all well? He said, all is well. My master has sent me to say there have just now come from the hill country of Ephraim two young men and the sons of the prophet. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and he tied up two talents of silver and two bags and with uh, two changes of clothes and laid them on two, two of his servants and they carried them off before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and he put them in the house And he sent the men away, and they departed. When he went in, he stood before his master. Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? He said, Your servant was nowhere. But he said to him, Did my heart go out when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Would you feed us? It's a lengthy passage, but Father, would you encourage us? Would you help us to see and not be able to miss this morning your incredible grace for your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Just last weekend, my family and I, we went to go see the new Guardians of the Galaxy movie. Now, I'm trying not to spoil it for you if you're so prone to watch it and haven't yet. So I'll just say in broad terms, there is an enemy who becomes a friend. And you you often see that in movies, don't you? You often see that in books where somebody who seems evil and and they seem an enemy and somehow they, they come around and they come on to the team. And this particular person was rescued by Groot. Groot's that big, tall, tree-like character. And, and, and the character asked him, why did you rescue me? And what did he say? He says the only thing he can say, I am Groot. And it needed translation. And his translator said that means that he said everyone deserves a second chance. Now, in our story, we see something akin to that as we see an enemy becoming a friend. Here we have in verse 1, the commander of the army of the Syrians. This, should stri- this would strike you hard if you were an Israelite. Syria is the, army, uh, is the enemy. They're the enemy. But what does it say about the enemy? That there, the, the, Amongst the enemies, there's Naaman, this great man. And what do we read in verse 1? That by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. The Lord, Yahweh, in verse 1, he gave victory to Syria, Israel's enemy. This would be startling if you were an Israelite, that the Lord was at this way at work in Syria. And then as we continue in verse 1, we, we learn something else about Naaman, that he was a leper. He's a leper. Now, likely it seems this probably wasn't what we think of as modern-day leprosy of Hansen's disease and Scripture. There's kind of a big umbrella under which things that um, are leprosy fall. It's probably something like really bad psoriasis or eczema. Not just like sort of bad, but like noticeably bad, like everybody can see it bad. Um, not too long ago, I watched a TV show called The Night Of. I don't necessarily recommend it, but anyway, it's a, <laughs> I believe it was a Pakistani boy who was accused, falsely accused of murder. 
And he had a lawyer, and the lawyer is played by John Turrito, and he has atopic dermatitis. And the large part of the show of watching this lawyer is like, oh man, this poor guy, just covered in it, like his ashes, like, you know, his, his skin is like snow, as we see described at the very end. And he's doing and seeking out all sorts of remedies, everything that he can think of to do it. He, he wraps his feet in saran wrap with all sorts of stuff. He goes to every doctor and healer imaginable trying to get rid of this. And yet it remains. It would almost, in that show, it would be comical if it wasn't for the fact that you just felt so much for this man who constantly, everywhere he goes, his ailment is on show for everybody, and people look away in disgust. That is Naaman. And we know how, how deeply it felt, because what does he do? Whenever he hears that there may be a solution, what does he do? He goes running. He immediately wants to go find a remedy to what's happening. Now, we're only here in verse 1, but we learn a lot here in verse 1, don't we? And there's something really important that I want to make sure that we understand here, and that is the author is making 100% clear that God is sovereign. That means he's in control. But he's really in control, and he's not just in control of Israel, because that's if you were an Israelite, that's what you would be thinking. What we learn here is what? That he's in control even in Syria, and he's even at work amongst God's, of Israel's enemies. Because as we learn in the Old Testament, God is the God of what? All the nations. What was Abraham told to do? He was, he was told that he was going to be a blessing to the nations. Do you remember when Joshua enters into the land, he, he comes before the commander of the Lord's army and he asks, are you on our side? What was the commander of the Lord's army says, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. I'm not on anybody's side. I'm on the Lord's side. In Luke 4, Jesus actually talks about the story that we're looking at this morning. And he makes people really mad who are listening to him. This is his first sermon. And he, he, he tells them that in the days of Elisha, there were many lepers in Israel. But what did God do? Alone he healed Naaman. Alone he healed Naaman the Syrian. And everybody got angry because no, Yahweh is for who? It's just for them. But no, what do we learn throughout Scripture? That God is the God of the nations, and it's always been his intent, what? To take his kingdom to the very ends of the earth. And we kind of see a breaking in of that in our passage this morning. As the sovereign God is at rule and at work everywhere, including Israel's enemy. And he's also at work in the enslavement of this little Hebrew girl. This little girl, likely, she, you know, she was taken in one of the raiding parties. Likely, Naaman is responsible for her now being a slave. She's been ripped away from her family. And what does this little girl do? Girl, we don't even know her name, and what does she do? What does she say? Verse 3, would that my Lord, Naaman, we're with the prophet Elisha, who is in Samaria. He would cure him from leprosy. This no-named little girl, what does she do? She chooses, even though she's been enslaved, she's been pulled away from her family, what does she choose to do? She chooses to share with Naaman the good news of her God. It's amazing if you think about it. And isn't that often the way God's kingdom works? 
and how God's kingdom moves forward, so often it moves forward at a great cost to his people, doesn't it? As we see here, at a great cost to this little slave girl. But what is happening even through her words, the words of a nobody, the good news of Yahweh, the good news of the God of the Israelites is breaking forth. And so Naaman immediately goes to the king of Syria, and he says, is there some way we can make this happen? And so the king of Syria says, okay, I'm going to write a letter to the king of Israel, verse 6. When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now when the king read this, verse 7, he tore his clothes and he said, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of leprosy? Only consider and seek how he is seeking a quarrel with me. Now, we may not get this right off, but what's interesting here is that the king of Israel, he's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, but of course he misquotes it. He, he quotes it inaccurately, which shouldn't be the case. This is the king of Israel. The king of Israel should know the book of Deuteronomy backwards and forwards. It's the great book of the Israeli people. And yet he seems not to know it. He seems not to realize that Yahweh, the, the, the great God, that this prophet lives among him, the one who could heal him, and he, he's just ripping his clothes. There's a great contrast here between the slave girl and this king, right? It's interesting, both of them in our passage, they remain unnamed. Even the king isn't named. Don't, that, that's for a reason, okay? The, the author is telling us something about what he thinks about the king by not even giving his name. It's probably Jehoram, we assume. But just contrast these two. The slave girl knows the good news about Yahweh. And the king, the one who should know it so well, doesn't know it at all. Yes, he's able to quote a few verses, but he doesn't really know it. Is that you this morning? Are you maybe able to quote a few verses? Maybe you know very well and are able to say, yes, Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. You know it backwards and forwards. You've said it over and over again. You've heard it said over and over again. But do you know it? King Jehoram, he didn't know it. He knew some of God's word, but he didn't really know it. His life had not been transformed by it. Now, Elisha hears what's going on. <laughs> and what does he say? Verse 8. He, he sends to the king and asks, why have you torn your clothes? He's basically saying, Jehoram, you're the king. You should know better. You should know what's going on here. You should know you can send him to me. You should know Yahweh, yet you seem not to know even God's word. We see how deep idolatry has come for the Israelites. So he says, send him to me. And so Naaman with all of his horses and chariots, his entourage, they pull up on the curb in front of Elisha's house. Now, you can't imagine that Elisha's house is very big. It's probably a little shack. Just imagine the President of the United States pulling up in front of your house. The entourage, right? All the cars, all the people, the Secret Service, the aides, the, the, the police before and back. It would, that's kind of a picture of Naaman pulling up on the front curb of Elisha's house. And Naaman comes and he, he knocks on the door. And Elisha doesn't even get up. 
He just sends word by a servant. Tell, tell him, verse 10, go, go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Now what does Naaman do? Naaman becomes angry. What does he say? Verse 11, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to meet me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. He said, I thought, sure, come on, I'm a somebody. I'm Naaman. He doesn't even get up and come out and talk to me. He should at least come out and say some words over me. And then what does he want me to do? He wants me to go wash myself in that dirty Israelite river, the Jordan. There's much nicer rivers back in Syria. What is going on here? He gets angry. He turns away and he goes away enraged. Elisha treats him as though he's not somebody special. Why does he do this? I think what Elisha's doing is very intentional. It's very intentional because he knows. He, he knows so well what Naaman needs to experience that he needs to be humbled. He needs to be brought low. You see, Naaman arrived at Elisha's house with his entourage thinking that he could buy off Yahweh, that he could buy his healing, that he could somehow purchase it. Not that he would have to go wash in, in, in this river. For Naaman, God's way is offensive. Telling him to treat him just like any other leper. And that's precisely the point, isn't it? Elisha is treating him just like any other leper. Naaman was used to achieving great things. But he needed to be taught something very important. That grace is something is something that is received, not something that is achieved. That is something to be received and not to be achieved. Now his his servants try to speak some sense into him in verse 13, right? This is a great word that the prophet has brought. Will, will you just go do it? Basically they say, and we're not sure exactly what happens in Naaman, but he decides to humble himself. He decides in that moment to obey the word of God through his prophet. Verse 14, he went down. He dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. The picture here is that his flesh this, that used to be covered with whatever psoriasis, whatever it was, it's now as soft and clean as that slave girl that slave girl who told him about her great God. You see, Naaman came expecting, thinking, assuming that this God Yahweh worked like all the other gods do, that he was like a vending machine. You know what I mean? You, you put the money in the vending machine, you press the button, and you get out exactly what you want, Except, of course, when that doesn't happen, when you put the money in, you press the button, and nothing comes out, or the wrong things come out, and then you hit it, you punch it a couple of times, you try to rock it, nothing happens, and you go away just frustrated, right? How often do we approach God in that way? Like he's just some vending machine that we can go to. If we can say the right prayers, if we can live our life the right way, if we read the right amount of our Bible, if we can do all this, then he's going to have to answer me, he's going to have to do what I want, that we can somehow control him, that he's like this great vending machine in the sky. 
Elisha. Elisha's trying to teach Naaman that Yahweh's not like that. Yahweh cannot be manipulated. He is a God who freely gives His grace to whom He chooses to give His grace. And He doesn't just give His grace because there's this big, important general in front of Him. His grace is the same for the general as it is for the slave girl. No distinctions. No distinctions. Now, this is good news for us today, isn't it? Good news for you and I today. That Jesus comes, and He he has come to us, and, and He doesn't say, okay, I will save you and I will rescue you if you can get your life cleaned up enough. No, what does the Scripture teach us? That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not by what you do, not by working really hard, not by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, but sheerly by His grace. That is incredibly good news, just as it was good news for Naaman, that there was nothing that he could do. Now, we need to understand, hopefully you saw Naaman's healing is much bigger than being relieved of his leprosy. Verse 15, he he goes to Elisha, and what does he say? He says, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. Do you see what's taking place here? Naaman, the the enemy general, what's happened to him? He's gone from anger and rage to being a servant of Yahweh proclaiming that he is the only true God. He has become, in theological terms, he's become a monotheist. That might not sound so striking, but in that day it was huge. What you have expected Naaman to do is to just add Yahweh on. He had all these other gods that he worshipped, and you would expect Yahweh just to be added on as just another god that he can worship. But he understands Yahweh. And he understands that he alone, and he alone is to be worshipped, and he alone is God. And so he says to Elisha, can I give you something? I brought all this stuff with me. Remember back in verse 5, we read about it. He took 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 changes of clothing. You know what that amounts to? That's like 750 pounds of silver. Another 110 pounds of gold. Okay? This is like three and a half million dollars worth of gold today, another quarter of a million dollars worth of silver. It would have cost, you know, a typical laborer in that day would have taken 600 of them to equal this in just a year. And he places it before Elijah, Elisha, and he says, won't you take it as a thank you? I know what we all would do. Elisha, verse 16 As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. Oh, just imagine all that that money could have been used for, for the kingdom, for Elisha's work and for the prophets and caring for them. Elisha wants none of it. Why? Elisha wanted to make sure that there was no confusion regarding God's grace. Yahweh. His grace cannot be bought. It cannot be paid for. He's not some vending machine. 
And Naaman needed to understand that this God is even more incredible than he at first imagined. That there's nothing he could do. And in fact, it's not even Elisha who healed him. It is Elisha's pointing to the one who truly did heal him, Yahweh. Now, Naaman shifts gears, and it's kind of strange. In verse 17, Naaman said, okay, well, if it pleases you, can I take a few mule loads of dirt with me? Now, this leaves us like, what in the world are you talking about, Naaman? Why are you so concerned with dirt? I'm reminded, maybe you know the Marquis de Lafayette, right? Fought in both the American Revolution and the French Revolution. He's the, the great hero of the two worlds, sometimes he's called. And whenever he died, he wanted to be buried on both French and American soil. He was buried in France. But he had already made preparations. He had brought back from Bunker Hill dirt. So that when he was buried, he was buried on both soils because the soil for him was so important. And, and we kind of see that Naaman kind of thinks that way in our story. In fact, that's the way Naaman is used to people thinking. Because gods in that day, not that they were real gods, but gods had their home turf. And they needed to be worshipped on their home turf. So Naaman wants to bring some of, his dirt, some of the dirt from Israel back so that he can make sure that when he's worshipping his new god, he's able to worship him on his new God's dirt. Now, is this good theology on Naaman's part? No, it's, it's really bad theology. But he's just become a believer in Yahweh. <laughs> what does Elisha respond? Did you notice it in verse 19? He just says, go in peace. Go in peace. What does he see in front of him but somebody who is now totally devoted to Yahweh, wants to give his life totally to him? In fact, he goes on to say, Maybe you noticed it um, in verse 18. He goes on to say, you know, whenever I get back, my Lord's going to have me go in to the house of Ramon to worship, and, and I'm going to have to go in with him. And he's going to go in, and he's going to bow down to Ramon. And whenever he bows down, I'm going to, like, bow down a bit too. Elisha, I just want to make sure you know that when I'm bowing down, I'm not bowing down to Ramon. I'm not bowing down to him anymore. There are no other gods before me anymore except for Yahweh. Elisha says, go in peace. Naaman has a lot of maturing to do, for sure. He will surely grow, but he's already set himself apart. Light, light years beyond that of the king, Jehoram, that pitiful excuse for a king that we saw at the very beginning of the chapter. Because he's devoting himself totally to this new God. He sets himself apart for most of Israel on this day who are bowing down to all sorts of idols. And yet the Syrian general comes in and he says, no, I'm going to worship Yahweh and him only. If you're a believer here today, Jesus has come into your life. He has saved you. He has redeemed you from sin and death. And like Naaman, what is our call? to put our faith in Him, to trust Him, and to trust Him only. But what are we tempted to do? We, we go around worshiping all these other idols, all these other things in our life. Our temptation is, in a sense, as you follow our story, to become a bit like Gehazi. We need to be really careful of that. The picture 
in this passage is almost though as whenever Elisha and Naaman are having this conversation, Gehazi's like standing there behind and he's kind of looking over Naaman's sh- or, or looking over Elisha's shoulders and he sees all this gold and silver, all this stuff. And he seems already upset that Naaman was healed, the Syrian general. He's not very happy with it. So what does he do? He runs on along. He runs up to, 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 to Naaman, and he lies to him, saying that Elisha has sent me. He says, can you, can you just send me back with a, a talent of silver and two changes of clothing? I, I come on Elisha's orders. If you're Naaman, the approach seems so sincere. And Naaman says, oh, let me give you double. Let me give you double the amount of silver. Let me give you, instead of 75 pounds of silver, let me give you 110 pounds of silver. Let me give you $50,000 worth today's money. Gazi gets back. And almost like a parent, when the kid comes in late at night, where have you been, Gehazi? No doubt he knows. Now, it may be special revelation, or it may just be that Elisha has been worried about Gehazi for some time. Maybe he saw him eyeing that silver and that gold. Gehazi says, your servant went nowhere. Lies to him right in the face. And Elisha says, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. Seems pretty severe, doesn't it? Why is Elisha so upset? Elisha, I think, is so upset because by Gehazi's actions, he was telling Naaman a lie about what grace looks like. He was telling him a lie that it can be bought, it can be paid for. Or you're going to have to go on an installment plan. You're going to have to pay this off over time, Naaman. And in fact, it reveals Gehazi's true heart, doesn't it? You know, at first, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking, oh, Gehazi's a little bit like Jonah. You remember, Jonah doesn't want to share the good news with the Ninevites. But as you think about it, I don't think that really fits because Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, actually, I think, because he did understand God's grace. Because he knew that if he went and the Ninevites repented, he knew that his God was going to relent. He knew that he had a gracious God. That's why he didn't want to go. Gehazi in our passage, he doesn't seem to have that same kind of understanding of grace. Even though he's been Elisha's servant for quite some time, he's been right there side by side, they've been. No doubt if you were to look at Gehazi's life, he would look incredibly faithful saying the right words, doing the right things. But we see that it seems that the grace of Yahweh that Elisha had been trying to teach to Gehazi had never impacted him. It never really grabbed his heart. He didn't even understand grace, it seems, in his own life. He's just thinking, oh, I deserve this. This is rightfully mine. Naaman shouldn't be able to keep all of that. 
And I just wonder what that slave girl that we talked about at the beginning, what she could teach Gehazi about grace, about how wonderful it is, how, he, how she could teach him to love her God, Yahweh. What, what happened to Gehazi? Coveting, if you will, got the best of him, didn't it? He saw something that he wanted, and he began to covet it, right? And he even kind of turns it into sort of an excusable sin, if you noticed, right? He tries to give reasons for it. Well, my master spared Naaman, so it's okay. This is rightfully mine. He even goes about not being too greedy. You notice Gehazi doesn't ask for it all. He just asks for a little bit. So he say, look, I'm not greedy. And that's, of course, part of the whole point is, yes, you are greedy for going and asking for any of it. What does Jesus' brother have to say about this? James 1.14, each person is tempted when he is allured and enticed by his own desire his own lust of his heart, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully born, brings forth death. Gehazi's story this morning should be a warning to us all. Do you see some of your sin as excusable? Like, hey, I got some good reasons. You know, Naaman has a whole lot. You try to rationalize your sin away. Do you say, well, at least I'm not that bad. You know, I didn't take it all. I just took some of it. You try to justify it. And we see what happens to Gehazi, verse 27. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. What happened to him is what James said that then desire, when it has been conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, what does it do? It brings forth death. Some of us here this morning, and I know this is, seems like a sour note to add or end our sermon on, right? But maybe we need to hear the warning of Gehazi. Maybe you need it in your, your own life. We need to understand how devastating sin is, how it tears apart lives, and how it will ultimately bring forth death. As John Owen says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Do you understand how devastating sin is? We, we see the consequences for Gehazi. He goes out from his presence, a leper, like snow. It has brought forth death. So maybe some of us need that warning. But that's, of course, not all we can take from this this morning, I hope. Think back to that slave girl. She was a nobody. But God used her in extraordinary ways to share the good news of her great God, didn't he? You don't need to be a George Whitfield, a Billy Graham to share Jesus. Maybe you and me were a lot like that slave girl. And God can use our sharing of the good news of our great God, of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and He can use it in extraordinary and in great ways.
Last point. And this is like wrapping up point, not like we're going on for another 10 minutes point. In case you're worried. Maybe, maybe you're a leper. Maybe, or at least you feel like you are. Do you know what I mean? Maybe you're thinking even now, oh, if you only knew me. If you only knew my sin. If you only knew how dark my heart can be. If you only knew. You and I today, we need to be reminded of the incredible grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Something that, that, this grace that is not something that we can achieve. That we can't work hard enough to earn it. It is something that we receive, that He gives to us. That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the wonder of the gospel. We don't earn it. We can't make God love us more. How could He love us more than giving His only Son so that we might not perish, but that we might have eternal life? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, do you believe it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the wonder of grace. We confess at times it's so hard for us to understand, so hard for us to comprehend that we can truly do nothing to save ourselves, to rescue ourselves. We thank you for the incredible good news of the grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you help us today to believe, to trust you, to trust your good provision in our life, to trust this day that Jesus' death was our death, that His resurrection is our resurrection, that His exaltation is ours. Oh, Father, help us to know and believe and understand who we are in our Savior, Christ. Guard us from sin and help us to flee over and over to the wonders of the grace of the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.